Welcome to Laerte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. This week's guest is Stephen Freitas. This is a special episode that I'm calling Drinks with Darty, where Stephen and I sit down, pour ourselves a drink, and just have a casual conversation about the Bolognese system. Enjoy. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers, brother. All right. So, um, yeah, yeah. How are you doing? What are you talking about? Um, everything, man. I mean, you know, lately you've been doing some really cool stuff. So I just kind of want to, yeah, yeah. I I, I want you, (laughs) I want you to tell me a little bit about what you're doing with Stringery because, um, I'm I'm curious. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I got it. I got to give you the big picture. All right. So I really hate getting stabbed. (laughs) <laughs> okay yeah. and so all I'm, my I'm interpretations right <laughs> are really big and like i don't want to get hit even if the opponent is ignoring every smart reason and just says it i still yeah. hate getting hit right so right the stringery thing i do is like if you're here and they're there and you're moving to the side always if you're moving from right to left and Porta di Ferrostretta, or Iron Gate, as we call it in my club, um, mm-hmm. you always will be having advantage. You will always be moving in a position whereby you have advantage. So if they attack, you can just put your true edge over their sword and stab them, and they can't stab you back. And so that's that's basically number one. So I always assume that the people that I fight with are going to be suicidal. Because in my club, most people know, don't try to parry what I do, because you'll never, I'll just do something else and else and else and else. They always immediately wait for me to do something and then make a suicidal counterattack, which was mm-hmm. annoying when I first started, but actually really kind of forced me to, to up my game. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that, I, I mean, one, I, I kind of love what you're doing because it's a... Okay. Uh, it's it's a thought process that I started to have when I really started. Dogs, man. What are you gonna do, dude? Whatever. What are you gonna do? It, it's it's an informal podcast. We might as well just let them be and join the podcast, man. Okay, <laughs> I'll give them. Wants, yeah, too. he wants yeah. to be heard. He wants to be part of the party. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I love what you're doing because, um it's something that I was kind of leaning towards a little bit when I was working with, um, with Manchialino and really trying to kind of come up with a better single sword interpretation for Manchialino, because I was like, here are these like six techniques. Right. And really in isolation, they're kind of boring and I wanted to make them a little bit more interesting. Right. Whether or not that's the, the right thing to do. I just wanted to make it more interesting for my own individual practice. And so I started thinking, okay, well, what if I start to take this offline a little bit? What if I make this a little bit of a bigger crossing to make some of these that's techniques make more exactly work what it does? It scares the fuck out of people to, oh, I guess probably yeah. so many F-bombs in here. No, it, it's it, okay. It's all right. It makes <laughs> well, people really nervous when you're setting their sword aside and your point is going in their face. It makes them react. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of when I, especially like looking at that first anonymous play uh, in your translation, 
like I, I get the feeling that that's what makes sense for that like otherwise how is that other person going to end on the other side of your sword so that way you can hit it with a falso you know right. it, it feels like they're gonna have to do something where they're trying to either disengage or you know react in some way right that's obviously actually, I was just filming that earlier today so what they do and then how would that how you know basically where they just change lines without attacking and then that sets you up to put your false edge over and go on with the main line of the play there yeah yeah and i, I mean it makes sense too because if they change measure right like if they step back and step out of measure then that's an opportunity for you to let your sword sort of drift even further to the inside to get to that outside line so that way you can kind of press that right it's like yeah, because even if you have like a crossing, right? So if I come in and port to the Pharaoh Strata and yeah. I get a crossing on your sword and I'm putting pressure on your sword and yeah. you take a step back because you don't want to deal with it and you relieve that pressure, chances are my sword is going to drop down a little bit and it's going to put me on that outside line, which allows for that false edge coming in and then right. that play to progress. So I don't know. I, I just feel like I I think you're onto something. I, <laughs> I like it. Thanks. Thank you. So I, yeah. I've really I've tried to boil the beginning of the anonymous. This is my take on it, um, and this could be I, I I basically think the beginning of the anonymous is an algorithm that describes how you're supposed to fence. So the initial that is the initial action is number one that gives you the whole main sequence, and then everything else in the anonymous up until about play number twenty four or so is just derivations off of that sequence. So different things they could do. So for example, when uh, you cut into Cotolunga Strata with the left foot forward, Cotolunga Alta, right? The mm -hmm. second play in the Anonimo is, is defending yourself versus an attack to the inside in Cotolunga Alta. So I mm -hmm. think it's just, instead of them doing nothing, which is what the first play assumes, now they're attacking in. And so it describes how you deal with that. Yeah. And then number three, as you go into Cotolunga Strata, which is the counter uh, for somebody doing stringere to you on the outside, inside. So if mm. somebody's stringering you to the inside, the moment you make the half turn of the hand, you now gain advantage of the guard. And so, and then that then takes you into the Cotolunga Strata sequence. Yeah. And then like 15 and 16 would essentially be the responses for what would happen if somebody just flat out tried to attack you and you were imported yep. to Pharaoh, right? Because exactly. it's all defense. It's pretty much like he, he basically lays out defenses against every conceivable attack and even yep. feints. Right. So it's like here you've got this, this entire corpus and framework to just kind of say, Hey, this is my strategy going forward. Right. It's exactly yeah, I like that. that. Everything leads up to that. And so, and same with nine and 10 is if, so one of the things that can happen then if you get into the outside, and I'm sure this happens to you a lot too, if you're engaged to the outside and you're stepping to the left, well, your opponent can pretty much just step to the left too. So you guys get into that, that giant, like kind of giant circle jerk mm -hmm. where you're just continually going to the left. That opens up the falso and reverso action, which is in nine and 10. So, so if you try to, let me, yeah. let me, let me throw some more fuel on the fire here because Chris okay. has an interesting way of approaching this where based on like Dalagoke, one of the things that we've been doing is working on assuming a guard. So for example, if we want to get to Cotolonga Strata or uh, Porta de Ferro Strata, we would start yes. and Cotolonga Alta. Okay. So, um, or 
excuse me, we'd start in, yeah, in Cotolonga Alta and we'd step forward and essentially do something like a mesomandrito or something like that in order to get over. And if yeah. you think about it, if, if that's my step, my initial step to get that initial strindre on my opponent's sword, that actually lines up perfectly with 10 and 11 because that's essentially what you're doing, right? You're kind of beating their sword um, by going no, into the Fort de the Reverso. I mean, it's, it's the same as a false kind of thing. Reverso. Okay. Right. Gotcha. So that's problem, right. This is what I was trying to a... emphasize with the Strindre video, and this is going to be coming up uh -huh. more. To Strindre, it's very important that your sword doesn't move. Hmm. Your sword cannot, it's definitely not a beat because if your sword moves and the enemy's sword is not there, it goes away. Your sword is right. now moving, and there's you're behind in the defense. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, the beat to Iron Gate or to Porta di Ferro from Alta is totally a legit thing, but it's a, I think kind of a separate thing. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah and then um, your Falso Impuntanto interpretation um, was pretty cool too, and. The interesting thing that about it that I think is, even though conceptually, kind of going in with the flat of the sword feels like a shield howl just a little bit. I feel like the way that you were doing it was a little bit different. Where, like that's kind of how you get to the fall. So, but starting on the flat and then turning to the edge was actually a really cool, cool thing that I don't I. I I really enjoyed it. it. It challenged what I was thinking a little bit. And I was like, Hey, you know, that actually kind of makes sense a little bit. Cause like you think about all the different times in the Anonimo where he talks about um, doing uh, the false impuntanto. And I think there's even one play where he specifically tells you um, really the best data point of like what the false impuntanto is. Right. And he says that it's essentially just turning your hand up. Right. Or it's like the turn of the hand after the cut. Um, and I feel like that's, that. if you hit, if you hit with the flat and then turn to the edge, I feel like that's essentially doing that, right? Like it's, it's that turn of the hand that just like the initial action creates the space and then the turn of the hands creates the threat of the point going around. And that was cool. So like the two handed sword, right? Um, and mm -hmm. this is super important because the two handed sword is so fast. You're always trying to seek the bind to slow shit down. Right. And right. The, when they come in to make any kind of engagement, they're going to be aligning base to the line that you're on. And then by turning your hand at the last instant, you're now striking to a new line. But they're, you know, to use a German term, they're in the knock. So they don't have time to actually react to the new line that they're going to be on. And that lets you yeah. strike and gain on that new line. So I, my take is kind of like what you're saying is that the falso impuntanto is just any time that we're striking and then we turn our hand in the middle of the strike in such a way that we threaten with the point. I don't know if it's solid, but it's the only interpretation I've seen so far that would work against somebody who was determined to attack you suicidally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's it's about constraining and about control versus... Uh, I, I mean, I think some of the interpretations that I've seen that are just more like a tr more traditional shield how in, in KDF um, really, I mean, just like a traditional, you got to think like a traditional KDF shield how you're starting probably from Vomtog, you know, you can even be up here yeah. and it's like, you're kind of hitting and turning. So you're kind of coming to the inside line and then turning out, which is 
you know, I guess the same. Some people interpret it as just like almost like striking with the flat to get the point in. Um, so even they have some like variation on that sort of thing. But I like the idea of kind of striking and turning, um, even with single handed sword um, and doing that with like Marazzo's Falso and Puntanto. I've found in uh, teaching my students that striking like a true mandrito with the edge and then allowing them to react and then turning my hand using feeling, which is another KDF term, which I just got done railing about using KDF and Bolognese, but whatever. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, you use, you use your feeling of how much pressure they're giving you to turn yeah. your hand out and you're going to have your point online and they're going to have to continue to make that parry. And a lot of times, especially with Marasso in particular, that's what opens up that leg cut. You know, that's it's it like opens it's up like, the it's cut. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's so, so easy. easy. Anytime it's done to you, that's I, I mean, it's there is nothing. I think when I learned it, it was called an expulsion. Whereas basically anytime you have your sword and somebody does the thing that makes that, you know, that particular noise that the sword makes when the false edge like gently rides mm -hmm. down and the sword just gets scooted out of the way and it ends with their point right in your face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time that ever happened to me, I was like, oh, this guy really knows what he's doing, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I used I used almost exclusively the Falso Impuntanto one time in a tournament to 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 get to second place in that tournament. <laughs> nice. I mean, I just, yeah. nobody had an answer for it. You know, it's just constantly right. just going in. It's just boom. nasty. <laughs> boom. Right, right. You have <laughs> yeah. to make an and extra do, wide parry. Yeah. Yeah, and the first time you hit them, they're just like, oh, sh what was that? You know, and then they're right. like, then they're really making that extra wide parry, and then that's when and you start you getting the, the light cut. For the other stuff. And yeah. then you get the opening back. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they're like, oh, I can't make a wide parry. So how do you, what do you do with that? The rule I know? found out from Morozzo for that I've in, I've done for his two-handed sword work is that you never cut around somebody when their point is in front of you. So you're always you always try to make them move their point offline, and only then do you cut around. And once I kind of yeah. figured out that rule, it sort of made it really made everything kind of logical and simple for me. Yeah. And, and so I know I have, I've been, uh, my life has been crazy lately. So this will be the second podcast episode that comes out in like two weeks, but <laughs> um, the one that's going to come out. That. Yeah. 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 It, it's been, it's been wild. I'm changing jobs and just going through a lot of stuff and we've been planning an event. So it's been cool. pretty crazy, but then the podcast that's going to come out before this will be my episode with Greg Millay. And so we talked about this quite a bit where we were talking about, um, um, shoot, where was I going with that? The, um, what were we just talking about? We're talking about the Falso Impuntanto. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, the Falso Impuntanto, like the, the setup for the Falso Impuntanto. So I I've been, a lot of my railing has been on, just kind of not being settled with a lot of the things that um, I've seen in interpretations with uh, the the Larga plays, right? The the wide play actions of Marazzo. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll be satiated if I go and I look at book two and book three of Marazzo and really start digging into that and seeing if there's something in there that kind of helps this for me, right? And so I was looking at book three and I was looking at his uh, advice for what he does with um, uh, the um, 
Gordy Detesta, right? And one yeah. of the things he tells you about Gordy Detesta is that Gordy Detesta is good for attacking somebody who's in Gordy Detesta, Cotolonga Strata, Cotolonga Alta, and that's it. It's not good for attacking somebody who's imported to Pharaoh Alta, right? Or and and that's that's what your opponent is in in that first uh, larga play of Marazzo right. and and book one, right? So essentially, they're in an a disadvantageous guard for you as you're coming in and you're fainting to get them out of that guard because just like what you said their point is online and you have to work to get their point offline right which goes back to the anonymous advice and so you do that faint yeah and so you you do that faint in order to get it off so that way you can deliver the the strom and sony so that that's the problem i've tried i've had with um i've tried the you know the other interpretations that are out there for that opening action and mm -hmm. every time I tried that, my guys just stabbed me in the hand. Mm. Like, cause that's just, that's how we kind of train. Like if you can stab somebody in the hand, your primary target anytime your point is in line and their hand is offline, like you should be going for the hands. And I couldn't do it without them being un un unable to stab me in the hand. So yeah, I'm not really wedded to my falso infantanto um, interpretation. But what I did want to do is I wanted to get it out there in the hopes that somebody would, you know, try to come up with a better one and then we could get the better one. Because I, I, I don't like being the ugly stepchild of the Hema world. I, <laughs> I, I really think that, you know, the people who do Fiore and the Germans are inferior to us, but we're, we don't have the... Um, the cachet that they do so well that's because we're still in our infantile stages and exactly. and it's hard to it's hard for people to sort of like conceptualize that now especially because we're getting so much information but yeah. think i mean like we just got all of the known treatises translated and out to us you know right yeah when i think about the fact that like one of them was done by some dude in california that didn't actually speak italian it's, it, that kind of tells me everything <laughs> you need to know about the bullet history this dude <laughs> well <laughs> like, i guess they were in need of some some somebody to come along. hey speaking of um have you had an opportunity to look at uh swingers um new translation or uh i have not no i'm supposed to be getting a copy but uh i haven't got it yet i'm super so stoked good. about it it's so dude, good he's, dude i'm telling you jarek is a freaking amazing translator man i mean i learned so, so much by working with that dude that yeah i have no doubt that it's freaking amazing it is one of the things that i love about it is I think for, for sake of brevity, just the way that Tom Leone laid out his, which was a long time ago and a different world. Like Exactly. It was like, get people doing this stuff, period. Whoa, lost him. Hey, there you are. Okay, cool. All right. Um, what was the last thing you heard? Uh, you were talking about Tom's translation. Okay. Yeah. So for for Tom Leone's translation, we it was published in what, like the early two thousands. Two thousand ten, I I want to say. Two thousand ten. So it, it's mm -hmm. it's about eleven years old, and even yeah. ten years ago, 
you know, especially for like the Bolognese system, that was like the only Bolognese translated treatise that was readily available. And yeah. it was like the Wild West, you know, right. a lot of the stuff hadn't been settled and understood. But he, I think for the sake of brevity, he left out a lot of the details that are present in Swinger's translation. And it makes it so much more fun to read. Like yeah, I was reading I mean, through... Yeah. I was reading through some of the sections that I've studied, like two swords, uh, sword and large buckler, single-handed sword, really book four. And um, I got to the two sword section and he's got this one part where he's like, you know, in the Leone translation, he tells you to cut a fendente, right? But Manchialino actually tells you to cut a fendente that ruins his face. And I was like, yeah. Right. Oh, <laughs> I didn't miss that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was like, why wasn't this there before? It makes him sound like it, honestly. I'm going to say this really quiet. It sounds like the Anonymo a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it totally does. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, it's so weird, right? Because so it's kind of weird. Like I came into HEMA in 2015, which I think that's about when you got into it too, right? Yep. So we kind of came in when there was already... I mean, there was Wichtenauer and there was translations, but maybe not, not everything was translated, but the pattern had kind of been laid out, you know, by people who had come before. So it's interesting kind of imagining and hearing about what it was like 10 years before we started, like really like the wild, wild west, basically, like nobody knows what they're doing. And yeah, except well, for the rapier people, because I guess that, you know, I think the rapier stuff is pretty well written and translates pretty well from modern fencing. That's the impression. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, for the Bolognese system in particular, like, I remember when I first got my hands on Maranzo, and, you know, Maranzo was what the third treatise that we really got. And the thing about Dalagoke yeah. is Dalagoke, even in his own right, is parsing down the Bolognese system to fit the fencing of his time. And he admits that in his introduction. You know, he says that um, fencing of the ancients was used a lot of wide play and wide play was beautiful, but I'm, I'm primarily focused on like narrow play actions and stuff like that. Right. And that's really what he presents. I mean, he almost boils the Bolognese system down to five guards, um, just like the Roman system with four guards. So when you think about it, it's like Dalagoke is even sort of like parsing out some of the, the bigger details of the Bolognese system. So really, we didn't really get a view of like the earlier Bolognese stuff until we got our hands on Murazzo. And then it was like, I mean, you remember the discussions. It was crazy. It was like, what is a false Montanto? <laughs> like Dude, this I, we're, we're still wondering you know? that. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, you know, but now we have more context, right? Because now we have the Anonimo, who actually has some like interesting discussion on on the false Montanto. And, and we've we got data more people with more points of view. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, like some of the frog DNA that I think we pulled in from like the earlier days, which I think a lot of people who are sort of settled in their interpretations, which, you know, maybe they shouldn't be settled, but, you know, perhaps some people are settled in their interpretations. They're kind of sticking to this idea that we need still need that frog DNA, whereas I'm starting to get the feeling that we've got enough of the corpus where we can really start just looking at the Bolognese system to understand it. Yeah, like we can really become just truly Bolognese. We shouldn't say not frog DNA though, because it's like, well, yeah, know, we've learned things from like the KDA. Like if I had never done Meyer, I would have never known about 
the shield how and yeah. i wouldn't say that the fossil info tonto is a shield how per se but it's the basic idea of getting your sword in there and slinging it in such a way that their point ends up in you know your point ends up in their face yeah 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 well it's it's a process of sanctification right to use use yeah. a church term here <laughs> you know it's like you you generally have like a, a broader understanding at the beginning and then you start to develop a, a higher level of understanding that sort of solidifies your understanding of more core concepts of of the overall system and that's what makes right. it more interesting right. you know no, so totally. yeah so that's yeah. I think we we are reaching that point now. We we can start turning it into like a legitimate martial art. I guess you'd say like something that really kind of can stand shoulder to shoulder with the more developed HEMA schools. Yeah, well, and, and I think we're we're kind of well on our way to to yeah. getting there. I think we're really starting to develop in that direction. I mean, I've seen so many people start to really kind of like focus on the Bolognese system and how many side swords are there available now? It used to right? be that you couldn't find a human trainer that was a side sword. Now they're right. everywhere. Right. I'm just like, wow, yeah. these guys are making side swords. The thing is you could say about Bolognese is rarely does somebody ever start doing Bolognese and then go back to KDF or go to go back to something else. That's Usually true. Everybody once they understand some bolognese, it's they, that's everything that they want to do. Yeah. So the other thing that was in there, I, I posted this on Facebook, but I thought this this is so funny. So uh, Jarek found he he went through um, a library and he found this account of um, court records from Bologna, and it was dated to like eighteen twenty or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but either way, one of the accounts in there of this like court case was from 1571 right so right at the time of, of Dalagoke yeah and and it's this crazy street brawl that ends up happening where these guys are like chasing each other around town with like speedos and stuff <laughs> and like carrying around like two-handed swords but there's this one account where this guy's like they're they're kind of like interviewing this one witness and he's like they were like did you see this one guy and he's like we found mr lagnani with the bear great sword in his hand or maybe it was a half sword i don't know how to tell the difference <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh man like wait a second. That, that's literally like the entire human universe right now like oh how many times God. have you heard that discussion how many times? Right. It's just, it's like the parallel between the fencing masters all criticizing each other in their art, like, and how people do it now. It's yeah. as it was, so it shall be again 500 years later. <laughs> That's oh right. God. Absolutely, That's awesome. man. It's perfect. It's like, oh. oh. Yeah. If somebody couldn't figure out the difference between a hand and a half sword and, and a great sword in 1570, then, yeah. um, you know. We're in the clear. We're in the clear. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, so it's um, I just yeah, I got such a so kick. I'm out. supposed to, I was supposed to get a free copy of it, but then that's not working out, so I'll probably just order it and pay for it. Yeah, I, I thought I'd right. already done that, but then I guess I didn't. And, uh, it's been a confusing mess right now. Yeah, that's right. There's some good stuff in there. I I need to do more of a side by side comparison um, to figure out some of the differences because of the added language, I think that there's some instances where, um, and, and I can't, I can't confirm this because again, I haven't really tried to parse it out, but there are some techniques where it seems like, um, 
he used the word beat instead of cut, which like Leone used the word cut. And yeah. then, um, you know, uh, Swinger used beat. So that's a big difference. You know, the difference between a beat and a cut kind of changes how you view these things and whether or not you're, you know, the, the overall technique. Like, are you kind of leading with a beat or are you leading with a cut? It's I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I so. guess, yeah, that's, that's what's tough about translating is, you know, like trying to figure out, knowing that people who don't have that language ability are going to be making conclusions based on how you translate stuff and trying to capture that ambiguity um, in a way that's useful. So that's, that's, it's tough, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I don't want to discredit Tom Leone translation and by any means, like yeah. I'm not saying that swingers is like in any way superior. I just think it's interesting that like, because I understand the importance of what Tom Leone did at the time that he did, because reading the language of the Bolognese system when Tom Leone was translating that was way different than what we're doing now. Like you've got, you know, when Tom was doing that, there were probably like maybe like 30 or 40 people who are really proficient in the Bolognese system, you know, in the world. and, in the world, and yeah. could actually like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Who could actually read through those treatises, and get an idea of what was happening if he would have left the language relatively similar to the way it was, you know, but now yeah. you've probably got a few thousand who can do that. And so right. like having that translation out for those people is more rewarding for those people where, for Tom, it was, how can I spread the Bolognese system to more people and make this more accessible for everybody else? And I think he right. succeeded in doing that. Absolutely. So. And kind of like laid the foundation for where we, where we are now. Like, I think that was a very important work in yeah, terms of yeah, developing yeah. the Bolognese community. And, uh, but now we're also at a point where we can do yeah, things right. that are more advanced. Like I found it. So when I, I, when I was working through the Assaulty, I found it necessary to actually go back to the Italian in order to really make some stuff work out. But like I never would have actually gotten to mm -hmm. where I was looking to the Italian if I hadn't started with Leone's book and been going through it. Right. So that's kind of the, yeah. I think that, you know, the, the nature of any time you, you're the first to do something. Yeah, for sure. And, and then it's, and that's why it's it's seminal and it's important and it's it should be celebrated. Um, and I mean, it, it's still a great piece of work for like if I had to point a beginner to Mancilino, I'd point probably point them to Leone first, and then say, okay, then go look at you know, yeah. like just don't point them to Dolly translation, and then is a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Your hatred for Dalagoke cracks me up. It, let's just let's talk smack about Dalagoke for a little bit. Tell me, tell me, tell me some more reasons why you hate him. <laughs> all right. First of all, he covers three weapons, right? That's boring in and of itself, right? That that's very yeah. underwhelming for a Bolognese author. Also, he streamlines the system in yep, a way yep. that's sort of soulless. But I think here's the thing that really sucks about Dalagoke compared to the other ones. He doesn't string attacks along. So if you look at an attack at the Anonimo, it's like you do this, they do this, you know, it's like you can see the progression of how you go through the sequence. And in Dalagoki, it's just you do this and respond, and that's the end of the story. You know what I mean? And watching people who are Dalagoki yeah. fighters, yeah. 
Um, they do a thing and then they stop and then like that's the end of the game. You know, and then they like pause and reset and there's no there's no flow. Um, also, yeah, I think it's just yeah, yeah. kind of dull. So I don't know. What about you? What's your take on Delico? Hmm. Um, okay, so my perspective on this whole thing has changed a little bit. So okay. when I talked to Dario, he brought up something that I thought was really interesting because he asked a question that I've been wrestling with ever since I talked Ooh. to him, right? Okay. So Sounds he was good. talking about, um, I, I brought up uh, Marazzo's progression through the guards, like why he puts all of his, his section where he's like, learn all of the cuts and thrusts and defenses and um, counters um, to the attacks um, from all the different guards and then lays it out in that big block in the middle of his uh, book mm -hmm. two. Right. 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 So why does he put that in the middle? And so Dario's um, assumption as to why the Bolognese masters do this is because he says that you should learn the flow and the plays first and how to just kind of progress through fencing. And then you should go back and study the guards and how to break the guards and like the overall idea I, of, of how to attack the guards stuck in the idea of guards and more think of them as a position through which you pass right yeah yeah exactly but then it's like you learn how to move and you learn how to like essentially move in, in dynamic ways and parry in dynamic ways and go through all these actions and things like that and then you come back and then you really learn the core tactical framework and so if you actually look um if you look at Murazzo and you look at the Anonimo, they're laid out the same way because what is it? Plays like 360 through 400 of the Anonimo. Like those, that last section where he gives just the, um, you're, you're in matching guards. So, yes. um, the Dalagokia section. Yeah. And he, exactly. The Dalagokia section. Yeah. Yep. So why does he put that at the very end? And maybe that's why he puts it at the very end. Maybe it's because you've already gone through and you've already learned all these different things and these sort of ways that you can progress through the plays. And then it's like, okay, now let's really kind of learn how to think about like that initial, like I've come in to measure, how am I breaking this? So the one thing to look at with those is try to figure out what the measure is on those Dalagokie plays. So I believe that the reason why they're kind of in that separate one is you're in strata guards and you are, you're close enough that you're striking their hand without having to step or you're thrusting with just a short step. So it's very close. And I suspect that that's part of the reason why it's at the end of the single sword section, because it's basically, you're now so good that you can get that close to somebody and be able to defend yourself. But that's also like you're saying, gotcha. kind so of you, like you see those already mastered the flow. I got you. So that would be more like with Delagokie, where he gives your, um, what does he do? Like true edge to true edge, false edge to false edge kind of plays. I guess. That he gives I mean, I'm not, after his provocations. Yeah, I'm not so sure on Delagokie's layout, but I know that's at the end. Um, but if you look at those, the measure seems to be incredibly tight. Uh, I mean, anytime that you can hit somebody's hand, anytime you can strike any part of a, another fencer without stepping, then 
you're basically acting, you have to act time in the hand. So everything's really, really fast, right? So, and I don't right. believe he has anywhere you have yeah. to step in order to strike somebody's hand or sword. So you're crossed on their sword, but it's probably like, kind of like yeah. you're saying, like you've already learned the flow that kind of gets you to these positions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it, it sounds like, um, like to take Palladini's term, the misura di frere, which is like the the measure of striking, and you're kind of in that place where, like, you've already stepped through like the edge of measure, and you're kind of just in a place where you can go ahead and start hitting them. And yeah. it means that they now have to, or more specifically, if you're the defender, they you now have to act uh, instantaneously. Right. You, there's no time to pause. Right. Anytime you're in that kind of measure where somebody can strike you without having to step, you have to go, you have to react instantly to whatever they do. There's no time to observe. So that's yeah. why I think that section is really interesting. Huh. So what I think is really interesting too. Yeah, you yeah. take that yeah, section no, I... and then you look through the, the anonymo beforehand and you can find those different attacks and then variations on those attacks in different plays in the anonymous. Yeah. So I, I, that's what I've, I've been, I've been trying to go through and really look at every different author's approach to attacking from specific guards and then the I mean the defense from the guards I'll get there eventually but just like initiating attacks from certain guards to see if there are trends and general ideas to pull out like are there more data points for what a specific guard is really good for like is there an attack that they prefer from a specific guard that we can say this is probably a good way to go so, for example, like I took all of Manchiolino's attacks um, with his sword and small buckler at the beginning of his, um, uh, like his first chapter, right, where he's right. teaching the attacks. And I was looking at Cotolonga Alta and Porta de Ferro Strada. And with Cotolonga Alta, he really only has two ways to initiate his attacks, right? Like there's there's a lot to those different sequences based on how your opponent reacts, the hand. but yeah. you really only have Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's two basic actions, right? So you know that when you're in Cotolonga Alta, these two basic actions are really kind of the things that you can work There's with to sort of progress really through important. as a provocation and attack. There's one more that's actually really useful and important. The, the fendente to the head. The changing step with the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're here in Cotolonga Alta, I was, I was just fencing earlier today with in Sword and Small Buckler, and that fendente to the head is also mm -hmm. really important uh, from Alta. So I forget which one. Yeah, and I like that one too because it is. Yeah, and it's 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 accompanied with that changing step, right? So it's like you kind of okay, almost make them assume that you're gonna step out of measure or something like that by gathering that your left foot back, and then step forward with the right foot to throw the fendente. Does he do that on a, hold on, I got my manager right here. He does that on a changing step? Yeah. Oops. <laughs> I wasn't going to post video of this, but with the books falling behind you, I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I am going to post video. <laughs> Dude, yeah, my life is kind of hard, man. 
Uh, let's see here. <laughs> yes, it is. It is with the changing step. Ooh, that's great. So then the best way to do it, if you pull in, that will draw them in. And then as they come in, that's the best time to hit them with the fendente. Ooh, very nice. Okay. Yep. I wasn't doing it and that way, but I'm going to do that my that favorite part about that. Yeah, and the cool thing is, is so if they keep their hands low in the parry, then it's super effective. You're going to hit them like every time. But if they put their hands high, then chances are you're they're going to be able to parry it and turn it off to the side. But it sets up one of the Anonymous like favorite things, which is to press into their arm and then cut that sideways tondo into the side of the head. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, man, this is perfect. Yeah. You set it up with that fendente, then they start to their hands go high, and you're just like, pop, pop. <laughs> yep. I mean, and I love the it. hands go high, you're like, oh, yeah. okay, sure, we'll go for the arms instead. That's fine. I like that if you can get over, yeah, 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 yeah. The fendente, <laughs> and then you can turn the thrust, like in the second of Manchelino, second assault, we do the fendente, and then you do the turn in the body and you wind that thrust in there. That one's kind of my favorite action to pull off, personally. But yeah, yeah. I mean, Manchelino. And that's kind of the anonymous, but Manchelino probably has the more like awesome stuff in his like more awesome fun fencer stuff of all of the sources. Yeah. Yeah. I've you know, I've I've spent the last probably I had it I had ignored Manchelino for a long time. And because I was primarily working with Murato, again, kind of going back to our roots by looking at Ilka and stuff like that, the yeah. two sources that I kind of really focused on early on were Delagoke and Murato. Um, and, and then I finally got a copy of Manchilino. And ever since, I haven't left. Like, Manchilino has just, like, dominated so much of my study. Yeah, you know, it's just so like, fun, I'm, I'm having man. a great time with it. Yeah, it's like Moroso's, yeah, Moroso lays out a very logical foundation, but if you just want to hit people and, or you just want to do assaultes and, and just have fun, Manchelino is totally where it's at. This is why I don't like Dalagoki. He's like literally none of the advantages. Moroso gives you, you know, like a good foundation for across different weapons. Dalagoki's simple advantage is that is easily understandable. That's all he's got going for him. Yeah, and now now that our fendentes are going to ruin somebody's face, it's going to make it so much more fun. Because <laughs> we're getting all of the parts that were just like, yeah, you're just like, oh, man, oh, yeah, I can see that. Like, I'm visualizing everything I'm reading. I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> It'll be one of those shots. You know, those ones it's like when Marazzo tells you. What'd you say? Oh. Oh, I was going to say, it's like when Murato tells you to cut from their head down to their toes. Oh, I think we got a delay. Sorry. Okay. I was I was thinking it was going to be like, you know when you're fencing yeah, yeah. and somebody gets you with a good one and it smells like gunpowder? That's going to be a total gunpowder. Oh, yeah. Guy. They're going to be sniffing gunpowder after that. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we maybe maybe we can maybe we can work on a, like a modern treatise and just uh re, re, make it make sure that they smell the gunpowder <laughs> you know that's right because the fendente is the one you don't ever have to pull back right like um so you you can't ever hit people yeah. hard with a tondo because that's like concussible because it moves their head this way 
but fendentes always moves right. in the direction of their spine so you don't have to worry about hurting them that way you just come straight down onto the mask as hard as you want and they're fine so those are always fun that's right yep it, yeah it doesn't take yeah. long after doing this before your so, primary concern becomes protecting your fencing partner <laughs> for sure yeah yeah that's uh that was actually you brought up a good point i was actually something i had to really kind of uh teach with that counter with that tondo to the side of the head i was telling my students i was like you know this is this is the way that you're going to knock somebody out so be very careful you know as you're yes. going for this tondo to the side of the head because it is probably i mean one you're attacking a weak spot in the mask two you're more likely to hit them in the back of the head three um like you said um you're going against the the direction of the spine so you're you're not hitting into their structure you're hitting away from their structure and where they're weakest it's kind of like the strong and the weak of a sword right like i mean if it you're totally if is. your sword is yeah. it crossed this way you know it's like thing. the side of the head is the flat of the sword yeah that's right you always want to yeah. hit them in the strong that's awesome. of the head stay away from the flat of the head yeah so that's what i do <laughs> to new people too is we'll be like nice. we'll calibrate our blows and then be like okay so if you're cutting straight down this is how hard you can hit and they'll be like wait, I can hit harder than that. And I can hit harder than that. And then we get to the side ones and I'm like, no, nope, can't hit that hard. Can't hit that hard. And then dial it back. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's Weird good stuff. You learn from experience, right? So, well, yeah. Good and bad, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. So. so tell me a little bit about, um, how's how's the uh the bolognese event coming along yeah so it's coming along really well um so we've got the dates down we got the location down um so it's going to be three full days of programming um we do not we are going to be probably looking at teachers this week next week something like that um it's going to be two tracks. So track number one is going to be oriented more for people who are unfamiliar with the Bolognese system. And that's going to be unlocking Bolognese swordsmanship. So it's going to be, you know, basically getting your body to do what the sources want you to do, getting your mind to understand Tempe, you know, really laying the foundations. And then the other one is uh, the other track is going to be from page to application. And that's, where we're going to be looking at how to turn all the stuff that we have, uh, going on in the books and bring that into modern fencing practice, right? So, you know, how exactly do we make this a living martial art? Uh, yeah, so that's kind of what we got. Yeah, and that sounds awesome. Going. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Um, ever since the one in 2018, I've really been dying for another Bolognese event. Because uh, in order for us, I think, to really really reach that next level as a group we need to get together in person and share the stuff that we've got going you know and try it out and yeah. hopefully all the best ideas will kind of float to the top and you know that's what we can be working from um yeah so that's that's kind of what we got going on for the event man cool cool are you still going to do it in vancouver yeah, it's going to be at Academy Duello in Vancouver. Um, and I, yeah, um, 
It's going to be three full days. I think we're going to try to arrange some sort of billeting options for people that are coming in from out of town. Um, yeah, at this point where we're at now is we're going to be looking at uh, trying to nail down exactly who wants to come out to teach and what they're going to teach, that sort of thing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm 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 super excited about coming out there and doing that. Oh man, I'm so glad. It'd be fun. We can actually fence in person. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I know. Yeah. We'll do a little yeah. bit of Mantilino small sword and buckler. That's right. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun, dude. I love that. It's the small sword and buckler is the best. Um yeah. Yeah, I mean it is it's a shame that you weren't able to come to that last one, but you know, hopefully we'll start having these on a kind of semi-regular basis. And then the, you know, all the people who are really into bolognese can get together and uh, we can practice, man. Really yep. raise ourselves up. Yeah. We've so got, tell me about, uh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So what tell me about say? your event. I know you were wanting to talk about that, too. Yeah. yeah. So we've got October Effect coming up. So every year, um, Triangle Sword Guild does October Effect, which is like a like a big camping event. Um, and so we've got like cabins and then we have camping, um, whatever people want to do. But this year we decided to kind of turn it into like this big HEMA party to celebrate HEMA being back. So we're going to have all sorts of crazy fencing games that we've, we've devised um, like a, a Franco-Belgian beer battle, which is Franco-Belgian rules, but with, uh, you know, uh, you know, pints of beer. <laughs> we drink it. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah, of course. Awesome. Um, so we've got all these crazy games that we've devised. And so, you know, Friday night will be a lot of fun. And then um, we've got, uh, we've got somebody coming in that's going to teach dance and they're going to teach us a, um, like a, a period dance that was that's also helps to inform footwork and sword fighting yeah yeah that's i do that's i think totally the new frontier of hema man is, absolutely uh, is dance we we need to get some people who are like legit dance people to start raising our footwork because you know yeah. we need to get better footwork and the footwork that these people knew in the past was based on dance you know, I mean, Eric Weiss said that we should all be doing Cuban dancing. So maybe <laughs> maybe there's just a lot of Cuban dancing on the horizon for all of us. I don't know. I, I, I think <laughs> we need dancing, man. I really think that that's got to be the new frontier because, like, I see the footwork stuff people are doing, and it's just, you know, I mean, the sources tell us, like, dance is where you learn to step, man. Yeah. So, yeah, well, that's you know. That's awesome that you guys so, are going to have that. Yeah, so we're going to – I'm going to go off on a, a tangent here on an aside, because I think this is actually kind of important. So I was, I was talking to a friend of mine about this and we were talking about why dance is significant. And I was trying to explain it to him. He's not a HEMA practitioner at all. And what's really interesting is if you look at, you know, Jess Finley has done a lot of work with the KDF system talking about how, a lot of the language that's used in the KDF system is all based around hunting, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's true even of the Bolognese system. There are certain elements of the Bolognese system, like Chinghiari, for example, like the you know the the, the boar's tooth. You know, sure. I mean, it, it makes sense that that would be sort of the idea of a hunting term. But there might be some level of of terminology that we're missing um, for maybe like 
tornare or like turns of the body or things like that, um, that would have been common language and something that everybody would have understood, like dance, that we don't understand because we don't understand period dance. But I mean, I think it's, it goes even deeper than that. All right. So this is okay. kind of my take. All right. So basically, this is my, my operative theory. So prior to the Industrial Revolution, people danced like a bunch. And dudes learned mm -hmm. to dance to woo ladies. Like that's kind of what impressed the ladies was having good dance moves. And I'd say a pretty fair thrust of civilization is dudes finding ways to woo chicks. I mean, that's where yeah. a lot of it comes. And then with the Industrial Revolution, it became a lot more about wealth and like becoming much more about, you know, being productive and having money and stuff like that. And then it became unmanly to dance, right? But there's this there's this great little quip in um, oh my god the Sprezzatura guy what's his name it escapes me uh, book of the courtier oh uh, Castiglione okay so mm -hmm. Castiglione has this like funny little anecdote about this knight who uh, was had joined the company in the court and you know they were now off to do their dancing and he's like. He kind of stood in the corner with his arms crossed and was like, I don't dance. I fight. Right. And they all just laughed at him because it was so against like their culture. I think the lady, I, I swear to God, I think her quote was something like, well, we better cover you in Greece and then we'll put you in the cupboard until the next battle comes out. You know? <laughs> Like it was very much like part of a dude's life was having some good dance moves, and I think it, it somehow became unmanly yeah. to dance, and that um, we need to to you know change that because I think in order to actually get to the fencing and be able to move the way they did, we need to be able to get our boogie down. Yeah, it, it's it's the Protestants' fault. Um, yeah, I mean let's it, be it's pretty much. I mean let's be frank. Fault. Yeah. It, yeah, the Anabaptists ruined it for everybody. You know, they're they're the ones who in the United States pushed west. You know, they're the ones who were you know big on just going out the there and they just ruined. yes, yes, you're not working. Yeah. Why are you not working? Yes, that's true. You got to <laughs> give the Catholics that man. They knew how to have some fun. I mean, it was you know when you get forgiven yeah. for everything whenever you want. You know, you got the right mentality. <laughs> oh, <you> just, <laughs> that's right. You just have to whisper the confession and everything is good. That's well, right. <laughs> So, an hour a week you have well, to face your misdeeds and then the rest of the time you just do what you want exactly you know so this is another interesting thing about this conversation that i was having with this guy in that you know you think about um most of so i okay now i remember so the the, the core of this conversation came from what fencing terms exist in modern language and i know this is something that devin borman's really big on um and like you think about things like I know he's got a pet theory that uh, prepared is pre-parried and you're essentially preparing the I proposition of what somebody. I'm pretty sure he said that as a joke. Is that a joke? It's a brilliant well, joke. I'm okay. All right. Well, all right. Maybe it was a joke, but there are some words like you think about like what, what are your fortes? Like what are your, right. what are your strengths? Right. Absolutely. Like, I yes. mean, a lot of, a lot of terms exist. Um, from fencing. fencing or have yeah. have transcended from fencing but most right. of the time the fencing terms that have transcended in a modern language are from um italian and french right yes. okay sure right 
Now, in the German language, there aren't a lot of sword fighting terms that transcended into the German language, which is a low context culture. Whereas French and uh, Italian are both, or uh, excuse me, yeah, it's a high context culture. Whereas French and uh, Italian are low context cultures, right? What is a and context so, culture? So context culture essentially is how many words will they say in order to get a point across? That's the best way that I can summarize it, right? So a German will probably give you like three words to explain something, right? Okay. Or to express their feelings, right? Okay. Whereas you, an, an Italian, Spanish, or a French person will probably give you a hundred words and will go on a tirade and use their hands and gesture and like really right. kind of, that's, okay. so that's, that's a low context culture. So low context is in, they put less context in their individual words and will use more words to explain an idea versus a high context culture, which will use more compound words to express a single idea. So is the idea more that somebody is speaking and that they assume that you understand the context of the moment and that they just make a statement that takes that, assuming that you understand the context into account, whereas somebody basically otherwise is explaining the entire context and the whole situation to you. Is that the idea? Similar. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, it, it's, it's a term that's used a lot of times in sociology to kind of describe okay. the difference in languages. So like the romance languages oftentimes are low context in terms of that they're like a lot of times things that are more important in low context cultures are dialogue, for example. So like in Italian culture, dialogue is incredibly important. You know, when you have dinner, you sit down for six hours. Like if you, if you have family over and, and, and there are people there, you're going to sit down for a long time and you're going to sit at dinner for forever, right? Whereas in British culture or in German culture, you're probably going to separate in some way. And so you, you might have like the gentleman go off and smoke a cigar or something like that. And they might continue to engage in conversation, but the general like overall sort of Conge uh, uh, overall atmosphere of like coming together is sort of separated and broken, right? And so then yeah. it, it okay. becomes, yeah. So cool. either way, but the, the Germans in particular with their sort of real emphasis on using hunting terminology kind of makes sense in that context of them really kind of just saying like, condensing ideas down into something that just transists everything, right? Um, and even with like Vor and Nock and Indes, like, you know, before, after, in the moment, um, the the names of the guards themselves, like the way that they're described, literally describing the things that they're doing. Um, I, I just find it really fascinating. But um, that kind of goes into a little bit, but what I was trying to say though with, with understanding dance and how it could even relate even deeper into um, you know some of the, the fighting systems that we study is that I wonder if there are like hidden contexts in there um, that, we're, that we're missing that we just haven't quite explored yet. I think that, I, yeah, I mean, it seems like there would have to be. And there's gotta be yeah. nuances of like movement and stuff like that, that we're just not getting because we don't, you know, we spend so much of our time sitting on our behinds and so little of our time actually moving on our feet and seeing what they can do. And when we do, it's usually in prescribed, like efficient movement, right? Dance is by its nature, not efficient. You're not moving in the way that's most uh, locomotively efficient. You're moving in very different kind of ways. 
which seems like sword fighting movement is very much based on not moving in a way that is locomotively efficient, but is in moving in a way that will keep you from getting stabbed. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So long story short, we're going to have a dance instructor. And then That's awesome, dude. We... I'm so happy that you're having a dance instructor. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite the slide and tangibly went off out there. But yeah. I, I told you, man. <laughs> so then um, on Saturday, we're going to have this big block of lectures. And we've got some really great instructors coming out. Um, Eric Lowe is going to come out and teach some cutting. He's won, you know, countless tournaments in cutting, and he's going to teach uh, basic mechanics for cutting. And then um, we're, David Biggs is going to come out. He's going to teach this really cool class. Um, hopefully, he doesn't mind me saying this, but he's working on something. We've, we've had a lot of conversations about this, but he's working on putting together a class that's going to take the Bolognese system and condense it down into a format so it's similar to the Vienna Anonymous. So the way that the Vienna Anonymous kind of collates and brings together like all the different rapier masters and kind of condenses them into one ideology from the perspective of a student, he's going to do the same thing with various Bolognese masters and teach a class cool. that way. Yeah, so yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. And then we're going to have a bunch of armor stuff. And, um, you know, we're still working on getting a few announcements for instructors and stuff, but we're, um, I don't know, I, I think it's going to be pretty cool. So uh, we're going to have a melee and, we're going to reenact a judicial duel and then we're going to have a secret tournament. It's that sounds like a lot very, of fun, man. Very hush hush. Yeah. And it's in North Carolina? It is. Yep. Yes, it is. Cool. Yeah. So, should be fun, man. Should be yeah, fun. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. It's great that all this stuff is coming back and that we can get together in person again, isn't it? Oh, I know. I know. My biggest fear is that everything's going to kind of close back down, but yeah. Hopefully, I'm, we'll I'm, keep our fingers crossed that things go well and you know, people are reasonable. So, yeah, it sounds like uh, so there's one guy's hoping that we'd be able to come from Australia, but I guess they're on total international lockdown there. So, oh, yeah, yeah, things are pretty rough down there, man. I guess, yeah, it, it seems well, I, I guess I'm not going to go off on a tangent about what it seems like in Australia, but it's to say <laughs> that that's disappointing to me. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I mean, but, even. Uh, yeah. I, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of worried that even Canada has, has been, you know, very uh, uh, international travel has been difficult with Canada through the yeah. last preceding yeah. months. And I'm hoping that things do ease up. So that way it'll make it easier in February when we come out to uh, do the Bolognese event. should be. I think it's highly inconvenient to them to be locked down from the United States because there's so many... There's so much cross, you know, cross border connection between the two countries, whereas like Australia is just its own little island, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you have to sit on an airplane for like 16 hours with somebody right. if you want to get to you. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, it's not like you can just drive across the border or right. you know, like I mean, uh, Australians are probably born from... learning how to like sit on airplanes patiently. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. They must be, yeah. man. It, yeah. yeah like well you want me to sit on a 16 hour flight to go somewhere there better be something amazing when i learn. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's too awesome but yeah that's that's so uh, you know it's great that it's all coming back and i you know right now the future just looks pretty pretty good for all this stuff so hopefully we'll keep this coronavirus stuff tamped down and we'll just have more and more and I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of think the time was useful, though, too, because uh, 
I think it gave people more time to actually think about their swords. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, my big takeaway from it was I developed good habits, good training habits. You know, I was training with a sword in hand for, you know, at least anywhere between an hour or two hours every day. And yeah, I mean, and I, so much of it was just refining the forms that I already knew and and the other parts of it was learning new things and exploring different areas and uh, falling in love with Manchiolino. So Manchiolino is easy to fall in love with. Yeah. That, That was my first text. So that was kind of, that was kind of my introduction to the whole thing and his assaulty are definitely probably the best thing in bolognese swordsmanship the three uh, sword and buckler salty mm-hmm. those are are absolutely wonderful how are his strata techniques i've I, i've been meaning to kind of get into his strata stuff i was looking at Morazzo's, but some of it's kind of crazy like he's like throw your sword over their shoulder and then go in and like put them in a fireman's carry and drop them on yeah. their head <laughs> yeah I'll- yeah, it's uh, I have well, so Maroto's ones. If you're not willing to kick your fencing partner in the balls, like you immediately kind of lose <laughs> some of what you can do, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Mechelinos, I I think they're super super basic. I mean, it's so the most basic one to me is the is I think it's the first one where literally you just bind to the inside. And then all you have to do is your right foot forward, you bind to the inside, and you just step with your left foot towards their right side and come back and pop them in the face. I mean, that that's just such a bread and butter action. It it takes away why you would need to do almost anything else with the true edge strede, which is disappointing mm-hmm. because they're really fun. But I mean, that one is just so simple, right? Yeah, that's and, interesting because you know, he does that with sword and large buckler too um that's one of his defenses it's boom and then just back yeah 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 Yeah. so you step in like from kotalonga log from kotalonga alta you step in and so he does it twice so the first one is when your opponent just leads with a thrust and you step in you step across and you sort of bind their sword across and then slice back across with a reverso and then when they do a thrust and then a mandrito um it's it's one of his later techniques and he tells you to step this time step with your right foot across your left foot so he says step with your right to your left or to your opponent's right um and then to um essentially cut off their ability to ever cut a mandrito and then slice that reversal back across their face yeah i mean i think that's a pretty signature bolognese move is um I mean, I just kind of explained it as like your goal is always to put your sword between their sword and their body. And then mm-hmm. once your sword is between their sword and their body, they're pretty screwed. Yeah. Right? That's a yeah. shitty situation to get yourself into. <laughs> and that's just a classic situation. You're there and it's kind of like, can I stab them? No, because to stab, you have to come like way the fuck back and then to bring the point back. So, but if that's the case, then just come back with the edge and boom, it's right in their face. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, it's like, so Manchiolino too though because like he does the same yeah. thing when he does a falso it's like cut a falso and then immediately cut a mandrito back across their arms yeah. and the chest i'm, I'm pretty sure that's what the elsa etira is so i've seen some people think the elsa etira is the ribbon cut but i think it's elsa etira is where you just interpose your sword between their sword and their body on the outside line and then just come mm-hmm. back and pop them all right, so that's like Murato's rising and falling that he talks about a lot with like sword and dagger, right? Yeah. Same. 
it's the same. It's so it's, I will say I, I recently had the chance to fence with an incredibly good fencer. And mm -hmm. uh, that was the only thing that I could pull off. Everything else I was pretty embarrassingly bad at in comparison. Uh, but I, I was able to do that one with <laughs> some regularity. So I was, I was pretty happy about that. So I'm thinking that's a pretty signature nice. Bolognese move is to straddle the false edge over and then come back in with mm -hmm. the edge, with the true edge. Right. And then it's also works with the two handed sword. You can do the same thing. And then if they push that off, then you can, you, you know, in either case, once they push that off, you can just whip back around. It's pretty, pretty basic. I think. Mm. I, don't I don't know. Sometimes I think of that as almost like you're kind of like beating with the false edge and then coming straight back down that same line. And if you can get them yeah. back across their arms, right. So like, yeah. Um, yeah. Make it so a shorter the, tempo. My one downside is I haven't actually got to do any cutting yet. So I'm not sure it's a legitimate move, but I kind of think like if you're cutting somebody's face, you don't have to have a super powerful blow. Yeah. So um, interesting, interesting note here. So one of the things in teaching Mancilino that I've kind of come across is different ways. Mancilino likes to put you in these situations where he's conceptualizing essentially every cut right so oftentimes Morazzo will just give you this bs of they can cut a mandrito a reverso or they can do a stoccata right and he just like throws yeah. it out there whereas mancilino right. actually will lay these things out with his defenses and he'll like he'll give you okay they're gonna thrust and then they'll cut a mandrito or they're gonna thrust and then they're gonna cut a, a reverso and yes. then they're gonna cut a reverso yes. to your leg or a mandrito to your leg right. and literally covers all four quarters and gives yes. you multiple options for the ones that are most common which I think is is a fantastic way to teach. Manchelino's grad school and and Morozzo is is four years. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that I thought was was kind of interesting is that he it it makes some of those techniques a little bit harder, right? Because you think about like, okay, I'm going to thrust, and then I've got to cut a mandrito back over top of my opponent's sword, but they're in Cotolong Alta, so if I thrust and they do a true edge parry. And then I have to cut a mandrito back across, you know, sometimes that limits how you can do that mandrito. So right. some of the, sometimes the best thing that you can do is kind of the zooken action where you're kind of pulling your hand back and then pushing your hand forward. There I go again, going back into uh, KDF terms. See, I like and, the and other option where you get, I don't even know what the German version of this is, but you get in that situation and then you do the loop-de-loop. So, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. so you're cutting and then you loop your false edge back along their sword. Uh, uh -huh. So like a winding cut, I guess, would be in Meyer. And yeah. then you come back in. So that's kind of my take. I don't, I don't really like pulling back and coming in because then you have to leave, take your sword away. Yeah, yeah. Well, I figured as long as their momentum is heading away from your body, like if they're kind of taking their sword offline to, to parry a little bit, then it's yeah, not yeah, as yeah. dangerous. You're totally safe, yeah. 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 So either way, I was playing with that cut um, yeah. when I was first um, – because usually I'll, I'll teach my students like two or three different ways to do a cut, right? So I'll, I'll teach them like something that's a little bit shorter, like that Zukin type version, or I'll teach them something that's like more of sort of wrenching their sword off and then cutting back in. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so I'll teach them both, but I was playing around with that cut to see how powerful it was. So I was cutting to Tommy with this uh, sharp side sword and I was getting like two to three inch gashes you know, just like 
nice solid gashes in the tatami yeah. from, from just kind of cocking my hand back and then just snapping it forward and driving it forward with my arm. Okay. So, so basically if we work on the, Oh, go ahead. Well, so yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking like, if that's, if that's the kind of damage that I could do with a technique like that, if I'm targeting their neck or their shoulder, that's, that's probably going to be sufficient. Yeah. So we could probably maybe follow on a basic rule. Like if you can make their ears ring from that cut, then it will probably be an effective cut. There's enough force to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Cause there's this one that we do a lot. Um, it's pretty similar where you start, like you find somebody on the false edge and then you basically just kind of walk into their face and it doesn't mm -hmm. look like much, but it, it totally rings your bell if it, if it happens to you. And I've always wondered how effective it would be as cutting, but if what you're describing is true, it sounds like pretty dang effective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing when you put body mechanics behind sometimes some of these more simple motions um, and you, you start to engage your hips with some of these more simple motions of the hands and stuff like that. You can make some really, really simple, stupid things, just really powerful. Okay. Um, but that goes back to dancing, right? <laughs> Here we are oh, yeah. talking I mean, about, it's all about the hips. hips. I mean, bolognese yeah. is all about the hips, right? That's why we're a real it martial is. art and the other ones are fake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was hyperbole. I, it was hyperbole. I know, I know, I know, no. I'm I'm just going to I'm going to give a I'm going to give a quick shout out to Fiore with his his Mesa Volta and his Tuta Volta because right. he he actually does a lot of engagement with the hips. Yes. And you know, I was so the other day I was looking at Vigiani and um we we just started um for years we've been at KDF school and uh one of our longsword instructors has started to teach Fiore and it's like the most heretical thing that I can possibly imagine. Like if this would have happened, five, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened five years ago. And uh, so either way, he's doing this thing where he's teaching Fiore and uh, you know, like the first thing that he's doing is teaching body mechanics and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's a really great class. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And he's got some really great ideas on body mechanics. I mean, first of all, he's an amazing fencer. Um, but um after that class, I went to, to one of his classes, just kind of check out what he was doing. And um, because I've been on this whole, I'm going to use Vadi and Fiori to inform my Murazzo longsword thing, <laughs> which, you know, we'll see how that goes. But Good luck um, with that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but um, so I went to his class and I was I was doing his footwork and his his drills and stuff like that. And I was like, holy crap, this is Vigiani. So really? I went back. I went back home and I looked at all the images of Vigiani and I went through his guard section where he goes through his guards and sure enough, man, like that's exactly what Vigiani is teaching is exactly what this dude is doing with Fiore teaching well, Fiore's basic Chicago guys do a big thing with that. Like the connection between um, Fiore and body and Vigiani. I don't know. I mean, I know that they I use, I, I know they I use read a paper about it or something like that. I mean, when I, when I talked to Greg just recently, um, you know, well, actually it wasn't that recent. <laughs> It'll be recent for you all, but it was not recent for me. It was like two ago. Um, but <laughs> I don't know what happened to June, man. It just like disappeared. Um, but yeah, when I was talking to Greg, uh, I know that they use Vigiani as a core for their body mechanics for, 
footwork and for like delivering cuts and things like that. Um, but we didn't talk about Vigiani and Fiore, and, and I wish maybe perhaps we should have. And I have not seen that information, but I imagine it probably is out there because it's not hard to draw that conclusion when you look at the images of of Fiore and his turns of the body and stuff like that and the way that he moves. And you look at the images of Vigiani, it's like almost like, oh, well, you know, it's it's basically the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, so much of the stuff that works comes from the... Um... From the turning, we got this. So we've been doing spear for the past couple months, which is super fun. Uh, oh, yeah. But oh, like yeah. one of the guys in my group is he trained with Naginata and, and Japanese, and they don't do the turning and the angles that we work with. It's a very different game that they play, and um, it was really interesting to see how the turns of the body create these striking angles that you don't otherwise get i mean so much can happen by just turning your body it reminds me of that um that picture in agrippa you know the one where he has like mm -hmm. the lines all kind of going like that it's that same basic idea like when you turn you you now open up this line where you kind of can come around things um and that's i think something has been lost in the kind of modern sense of fencing and it, it doesn't appear a lot so yeah yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's really fascinating when we did partisan because coming out of the pandemic, um, we we were doing a lot of partisan stuff, and I know we were kind of like four or five months ahead of you guys, so so it was even longer ago. Um, but yeah, it was the craziest thing because I started. There was one day where I was fighting one of our KDF practitioners, and um, I hadn't really been fighting much with a two-handed sword and a bolognese mm -hmm. style in a long yeah. time. And so I was super rusty and I could tell. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to start fighting with the two-handed sword like it's a partisan. Yeah. And sure enough, dude, I just started tearing this guy to pieces. <laughs> and I, was nice, like, <laughs> I was like, oh, man, this is yeah. okay. All right. Now I'm yeah. starting to unlock. This is cool. Yeah. So those angles you create with the turns and the... I mean, I called the tummy laser, which is kind of a stupid name for it. But basically, like when you can point, when you point your navel in a certain direction, and the strength you can kind of create with thrusts that they go like sideways, they're they're really hard for people to resist that aren't familiar with the idea. Hey, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear right, me? I lost you there for a second. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot about like alta, like why that fendente works, right? So you turn in and when somebody's stepping in, because you're in this position, you can now push at an angle over their weapon. And most people, if they haven't trained uh, at using angles, they get pretty beat by people who can use angles to crush their weapon. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things. Like, um, you know, Chris, as one of the core fundamentals of, of our Bolognese system, when you know we we teach stepping on the on the the segno right so yeah that's great and segno stepping is like one of our our core concepts and he the way that he teaches it is he's got um six basic segno steps that we all learn and um you know the the crazy thing about these segno steps is like the basic segno steps are essentially triangle steps um, yeah. going all the way around a circle, right? But you're mm -hmm. still learning how to traverse a circle without ever turning your back on your opponent. Right. And um, 
But the interesting thing about it is that when you do these segno steps, if you start to apply them, like if you take that basic segno step where you're just kind of doing that transition of feet where you're stepping one foot this way and allowing the other foot to circle back behind, yeah. if you do that with a parry, you're going to dominate any cut that comes your way, right? Yeah, that's that's the anonymous basic parry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you do this and then turn your shoulder and pull your foot back as far as you can. I mean, that's, yeah. that's Bolognese 101, man. Right. So it, it's crazy how like you can apply these these little things like, for example, uh, we what we do is our second segno step is we lead with the front foot. So front foot, back foot. Right. And then we do the, the regular segno step to switch. And then we do front foot, back foot, which allows us to get that crossing step that a lot of times you see in Manchialino with his sword and large buckler or even yeah. sword and small buckler. He likes to do that crossing step with a false um, but when you do that initial forward step, so imagine that you've got your right foot forward and you start by just moving your right foot over probably like six inches, right? Which I think the Anonimo does this too, um, quite frequently where he just says that you, uh, move it, what, like one brachio or something like that. What does he say? Or one foot? I can't remember. Uh, he, he doesn't do a lot of cross stepping, but he, so stepping no. away or stepping yeah, yeah, stepping, stepping away. So yeah, like, yeah, I, would take, like I would take, I would take my right foot. Four fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Like three or four fingers. Right. Yeah. So right. like, yeah, you take your right foot and you just kind of move it over to the right, even further. Yeah. Right. If you, yeah. if you were, if you accompany that step, right, whether you have right foot forward or left foot forward and you cut from the same side against an opponent, you can deliver a cut, like a basic cut, like a mandrito or a reverso. No kidding. I didn't think about that. That they can easily parry and if you right. just do that slight step out of your foot you yeah. will absolutely dominate their guard and you will blast through it right yeah, yeah and yeah. it's just it's just that little the, that tiny little step of like that's, three like, or that's the advantage of the guard thing that yeah exactly so that's so you, yeah because you're just you're just that's yeah i'm sorry but that's exactly <laughs> it that's basically like anonymo fundamentals and it's like so glad to hear somebody else grasp the concept you just you just move just three inches, and then when you move, your navel moves, and the line that your navel's on changes, and then the line that you meet the sword on changes, and you completely control that line. Yeah. And that's, that's his most basic parry. He does it with a passing step from Alta, because you have to do it from Alta, and then from Strada, he just keeps, he just steps, just like he does with Porte di Ferro Strada, but it's the same basic action. And then you follow up with that compass step so that you end up turned like in the um, Palladini picture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's, um, I mean, all credit to Chris. That's that's definitely something that he kind of came up with and taught us. So that's um, awesome. yeah, he's, yeah. of course, he's a, a fantastic instructor. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool though, especially like you said, like reading that kind of stuff in the Anonimo or in other sources, like I, that's one of the things I love about Manchiolino. Let's let's just <laughs> this go is, back, to, go back mean, to how much the Manchiolino love face. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Like, how I don't know how this turned into a Manchiolino love fest, but it, it, here, <laughs> we're just gonna continue to pile on. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but one of the things that I think is really great about Manchiolino is his dynamic footwork. You know, like yeah. anytime Manchiolino delivers, uh, you know, it's always like if if you're circling around to the right of your opponent 
your back foot is always trailing behind, which gives you leverage, right? And if you're doing a slicing action, if you're pushing a cut or doing a slicing action, it makes that slice even more dynamic. And then you're taking a step back to settle back and guard. And if you think about it as like, if you can catch your opponent in the tempo of them moving, you're essentially working to the side of your opponent. So their uh, Drita Via is pointing forward and now yeah. your Drita Via is off to their side facing at exactly. them. Exactly. And you exactly. have all of you have all of the leverage, you have all the advantage. Yes. And it's yes. like, it's brilliant. And I love yes. that he does that. So this is, that is the geometry inherent in Bolognese swordsmanship. And it's like, once you actually see it, then you see it everywhere. It's yeah. that's what's exciting yeah. about it. But until you like, it, until you actually experience it, it's kind of unclear, but yeah, you strike. And then as you turn, all of the trouble to your left is gone. So there's only trouble to your right, which is then taken care of by your falsehood. And then, so you know back and forth it's uh yeah and, and, it's, it's exactly it man well and and the cool thing is like you think about basically what we know of the bolognese system we know that it already was a a geometry professor right professor of mathematics but geometry being a subset of mathematics presumably yeah yeah so well, I thought I thought in the the Wichtenauer profile they they put that he was mathematics like astronomy and then um, astrology I think astrology yeah and then uh, and and then geometry but don't, maybe I'm you're not, right but, I thought it was math but either way you're basically saying exactly what I I, I totally 100% agree with that Darwin yes. is the one who who basically took Fiori introduced geometry to it and turned into Bolognese swordsmanship. That's brilliant. I love that. That's because the, the Fiore was basically the representative of what was common in Northern Italy at the time. And then mm -hmm. they added geometry to it and then it became an urban art. And so, yeah. That's, yeah. And that's where we get a lot of our line stepping because that's the application. And that's what, that's really what, like, if you think about Fiore, Fiore has great turns of the body and using body yeah. leverage and things like that. But a lot of what he's really good at is being very direct. And so some of that may just come from fighting in armor and things like that. But what the Bolognese system takes is it takes those same basic ideas of body mechanics and turns and leverage and things like that, that you can generate with your body and then starts to add that circular footwork that right. allows for even more leverage and makes an even more dynamic system, which is just right. brilliant. And then the later Italians read it and said, we don't need the circular stuff. We're just going to like work on this one move and going super fast. And then the Spanish <laughs> said, Hey, these Italians with their circular movement are really onto something. Let's do a thing with that. And then we are where we are. That's why Bolognese yeah. swordsmanship does literally represent the pinnacle of all sword development. Freaking Agrippa, man. May he burn in hell. <laughs> what a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He so that's, ruined all know, that. <laughs> he, he, he took a school and then, you know, they basically just, I, I don't think it's, it's not wrong to characterize everything that follows as an, a simplification of something that appears as Neonimo Bolognese. At least all the single sword work. So there's, you know, all the basic cavazione, ricavazione stuff that appears in the Italian shows up in the in the Anonimo Bolognese. Just like, you know, the circular footwork is certainly seems implied in the Anonimo Bolognese. So, 
yeah, that, that, that's, that's my basis for saying the Bolognese is the, you know, the pinnacle of sword art. Yeah. So since I, a lot's happened since I've last talked to you, because I've talked to a lot of different people. And <laughs> so um, one of the cool things was I got to talk to um, Jay Maxwell and he actually, oh, yeah, I think I listened to that. It was a good one. He was talking about going to visit the Anonimo um, in Rome. Oh, God, the Europeans, they just love to rub that in, don't they? Oh, like, man, they really do. Amazing backdrops, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> I'm going to go visit this 500-year-old manuscript. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, sorry. Anyway. Okay. All right. Another, I'm just going to throw this out there, but on Goodreads right now, I think it was Goodreads, um, there's, a, there's a website that sells, like, used books and stuff like that. Uh-huh. There's actually a copy of Marazzo from 15, a uh, print of Marazzo from 1560. And there's a Manchialino original that are out for sale right now. Um, for reals? Yes, for reals. Manchialino's like, Marazzo's only like 4,000, which only is crazy. 4, yeah, only wow. 4,000, which is, I think it's crazy. Like, I put a lot of value in that. If I had $4,000 to spend, I would do it. But obviously, I don't. Yeah, sorry, children. You're not going to college. You're going to be daddy in 1568 Marozzo. How much is the Manchelino? 7000 Oh, Yeah. Yeah. But so uh, back to <laughs> Jay Maxwell and not just like, you know, putting like fever dreams in our minds. But uh, right. so when he, <laughs> he went to Rome and he was going to visit the Anonimo, he said that it, it's like you go up this like marble staircase that has like these gold railings and they're like these gold angels like protruding from the ceiling, <laughs> like blowing. And, stuff. and unfortunately, he didn't get to see it. But one of the things that he brought up that I thought was really interesting um, is the the idea that there's a possibility that the Anonymo is written by different authors, that it's a, a collation, like it's a collection of, of different authors. Uh-huh. Have you, like, I mean, I haven't seen scans of the Anonymo, so I don't know, and I don't know if that's true, but um, I just wanted to bring that up with you and see what okay, you so thought. Okay, so there's definitely at least two different authors. So there's remember so the anonymo there's two separate manuscripts right, and part yeah. of it is definitely a copy of another part written in a different hand by a totally different person. Gotcha, right. Gotcha. Okay. So there's definitely two people involved. So it's just yeah. Um, the other stuff it, ahead, to me seems highly unlikely that it's more than one person. Um, because there is an overall thrust to the anonymous. So the plays come in an order that is beguilingly vague, but you know as you do it that there is a single plan behind the whole thing. Um, it's mm-hmm. limited. I, I felt limited in understanding it by my own... Um, lack of knowledge really i mean the sword world in which we operate is so below where they were that the knowledge i think is to some extent inaccessible to us um 
which I think is one of the goals that we're trying to create um, is the ability to fence very, very deeply. And I believe that this is meant for people who have the ability to fence like many, many intentions deep. And, you know, for us in yeah, our world, so if you're fencing like two intentions deep, you're pretty far ahead of the next guy and three, you're so far ahead at that point that you probably won't have much chance to grow because there's not anybody around to push you unless you travel very far. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting you bring that up because that's one of the things that I think drove me to Manchialino was that mm -hmm. I realized when I started reading Anonimo that I was missing something like I could fight and get to, you know, third, fourth intention sometimes when i fight chris because we've been training together for so long like we'll have these long passages where we just do these crazy things and we'll go six or seven eight eight intentions deep but we know each other so well because we're training right. partners that it's completely different like you can't judge like the way that you would fight with somebody else on, on that you know because right. there's so much familiarity there but when i was reading the anonimo i realized that i needed to kind of get in touch with the rest of the Bolognese system to really kind of have a better understanding for what I was looking at. Like the introduction alone was just like, this is on a different level <laughs> and, and I love it. And I've used it as a framework to try to understand everything else though. You know, like, I mean, I've, I, I read the, like, going through the introduction I've gone through I've looked at like every single author's tactical ideas of what they're saying and what agrees with the anonymo what disagrees with the anonymo most of them agree with the anonymo in some way or the other I couldn't find anything that really disagrees with the anonymo right which I thought was great and it, it's something that I keep coming back to and of course it's not like the, the plays are hard to go through but it's still like they're like you said there's kind of like this deeper understanding of fencing there that's like maybe I should really understand all the authors. Maybe I should under, understand like Dalagokie, Morazzo, and Manchilino before I really kind of jump into the Anonimo and say like, all right, let's take this to like doctor level. Right. That's exactly <laughs> kind of like, I think where the Anonimo is at. And I, I think it's a pretty good analogy. Dalagokie is the high school book. And then Moroso is the undergrad, and, <laughs> you know, is the is the grad school, and uh, yeah, Anonimo Bolognese is when you get your PhD, I guess. I don't know, but it's that that kind of deep and intense. I like it. Yeah, I mean, just going back to the first thirty yeah, plays, it's, it's there's really so much into there's it's there's it's so deep that like it, only because like. I've spent so much time with it. Can I do that? And then reference like, okay, I remember play 216 where we actually are doing this one totally random thing. And if you hadn't spent literally thousands of hours with it, like you wouldn't catch it. So it's, you know, you have to sit with that thing and to, to really get it. And I only, I feel like I only get just the slightest bit of it. Um, which I guess is probably another reason why Dolly well, Goki is. Yeah. I mean, like, Cause it's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> There's no mystery. So, okay. All right. So, you know, kind of tying this all together, um, 
we we talked about rising and falling earlier and you know one of the things that kind of popped into my head when you were talking is like thinking like so in play i think it's 23 and 24 um because they're pretty much the same thing that's like just one continuous play but you start with that um that impercata right and you yes. you thrust the it might be play 21 that i'm thinking of. but either way you thrust you thrust well, the impercata and then you're yeah. you're setting it up so that way you can yeah and so you you thrust the impercata so that way you can do that falso and mandrito to cut back down right right and it's like you think about that and it's like if you don't quite understand that that is like one of the core concepts in the bolognese system you don't quite get how clever that is that you're using an impercata to set that up right like you're thrusting an impercata at somebody's hand in order to set that up to come back through and then like now that i'm thinking about it i'm like holy shit that's kind of brilliant like that's yeah. like that's a really clever way to get to that thing you know and he does because it, you he can does do that safely without ever really like ways. yeah so here's a fun thing to try. So this is kind of one yeah, of the things so, I've been off on the wide play. So try this. So when you're working with a partner, like have them do the imbricata to your hand and then, you know, let it reach all the way down to unicorn or to wide iron gate or to iron gate and then launch your mandrito afterwards. Then have them do it to your hand and mm -hmm. slip it and immediately come back in with the cut so that your cut is still falling. Um, so that your cut is originating before while his blow is still falling and then try the different parries there because i think what he's actually introducing you there is this really wacky falso i'll just use the pen to demonstrate so if i'm here and it's coming in it actually comes in like mm -hmm. this like a, a crump out i guess a little bit instead of like what we would normally do which is you come to guard here and then come up to parry because if it's still falling, you have to use the continual motion of the sword or else it's going to be too slow and you're going to get hit. So that's a, one of the little details that I've only got out of like really just bearing down and trying to do it against and, and trying to really turn it into something alive and notice that difference of striking and then the timing difference when somebody waits for you to fall in guard and then you can do the proper false like we all like to do versus when they attack you and your sword is still falling and how to do a false in that context. Yeah, that's really interesting because I the one typically the way that I've gotten that to work and and sparring has been just doing like a, a more traditional falso in mandrito, but I haven't tried to go with that sort of looping falso. But I will try that next time I try to get somebody who does really tight timing. So so basically well, train your guys how to re... so I show will. your guys like this is when we throw the imbricata, we're doing this because we're trying to get them to attack us so that we can hit them with the false on the mandrito. So then when you do that to them, they go, I'm not falling for that. And then <laughs> show them how to use timing to then defeat that so that they're on you before your sword actually falls, and then you can defeat that with that. There's this other one right after it. There's a couple of plays later where you actually come in, you're on top, and then it looks like it's, so it's two thrusts. You come in with a thrust here and then a second one, which is a, you make a half turn of the hand and you do a second thrust. So it's two thrusts in a row, the second one being an imbricata. Mm -hmm. so, so there's some really interesting stuff in the um, Anonimo Imbricata section. I'm hoping somebody's going to teach the Anonimo Imbricatas at our event in Vancouver. Um, cool. So, 
even more reason yeah. to be there. <laughs> yeah yeah so i'd love to see because i when i look at sparring i don't see nearly enough imbricatas going on so. oh you you don't watch me fight enough I'll well have to I, I don't you're not posting video are you <laughs> no i'm not uh, yeah no chris chris gives me a hard time all the time because i love the imbricata but it's yeah. such a good offensive guard and you know he's such a good defensive fighter that i just have to kind of lead with something that's like you know just kind of predictable it's, offense one chicken imbricata why go back i mean it's so much fun I mean, god it's so much fun why why stand an iron gate and walk in when you can put your sword in their face <laughs> above them and lunge in with a yeah thrust. yeah isn't that <laughs> i'm sorry i'm gonna go back to me <laughs> <laughs> Man, you got a little bromance going on with that dude. I really do, man. I've I've got it. I've I think I I think I'm gonna get a Manchilino tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um so isn't that isn't that kind of like when I, I can't remember this specifically. I, I feel like I just read this last night though when I got Swingers translation, but um in the introduction, you know, Manchilino gives a lot of this like mismatch fencer kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I feel like he tells and I I think this is right. He tells tall people to use high guards against shorter people, right? I'm not, I'm not sure I remember that, but I mean, it certainly is a great idea. Well, because he tells you to attack their 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 top line, right? So he's right. like, your your general targeting area is going to be like their upper body, whereas for a shorter person, if you're fighting a taller person, your targeting area should be their legs. So I, I think mean, that's kind of like the natural when you strike you're striking to the bind and it's generally understood to be preferable to be in the over part of the bind than the under part of the bind right yeah, yeah any yeah. kind of engagement right yeah. So, yeah and to go to the closest target too right so if you're yeah. shorter and the closest target is going to be somebody's legs and that's the right. that's what's open then that's what you should take but right so that's the other thing i'm hoping that we'll have at the imbricata class which is all the ways for short people to defend themselves against imbricata so that way they don't run away from the imbricata and then we can actually practice the imbricata against people and stuff <laughs> that happens afterwards. Because whenever yeah. I try to do the imbricata in, in free sparring, people just back off and back off and back off and I never get to do the fun stuff afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dalaguki actually gives... Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> All right, dude. Dalaguki actually gives a pretty good defense against the imbricata. I, actually, he gives a, a few pretty good defenses against the imbricata. I mean, my favorite... Honestly, when somebody goes up into Alicorno is to just bind over top of their sword and just drive straight through their middle line. I love that. Yeah, but you can't do that if they're like distance. And they should only be in unicorn guard if they're at the distance to pull it off. Yeah, I just find that people a lot of times like you can almost catch them in the temple when they're coming out of distance and they're trying to do an imprecata and you can just kind of cut straight into yeah. it. But, I, try to teach, I try to teach the tall people in my group, like you enter the fight in unicorn guard. You know, yeah. it's not just drawing up into unicorn guard. It's just like, that's a small person. Yeah. Put your point in their face and stand really far away from them. And so they have I think no that, choice but to obey you. Yeah, and I think that, that that works for me, right? Because I can I can kind of get over top of a lot of people's yeah. uh, Gordia de Alicorno, but... You know, Midge, or like Delagoke's advice is to just essentially cut a Mandrito into the Imprecata. And I think like Paladini says something very similar. He says to cut, um, 
what does he say? It's like, it's this weird thing. It's like a Mandrito Redopiado, which I, I kind of assume is probably like a redoubled Mandrito um, for him. I, I don't know. His language is, is kind of skewed. Uh, I've seen Invercot a good Invercotta crushes anything that rises into it from that direction. Yeah. Like anything. You put your sword over it and they're like, they try to do a thing and you just drive their sword down and then you're pointing yeah. towards them. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I like I said, I mean, I'm 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 I love to use the impercata and in sparring and in tournaments and stuff like that. So yeah, it's one of my, my key things to do with a, a single handed sword and no accompanying things. But um yeah, I I don't know. Just trying to think of different counters to it. Um, so the things that I found work best are to come at it sideways. So if sideways. you start, yeah. So if you start in like Cotalunga Stretta and you're to the inside, like your body's to the inside, but you keep your point to the outside of the imbricata, then you can actually imbricata over their imbricata. <laughs> Imbricataception. <laughs> yeah, basically it's like, so like one's here and the other one's here. As that one's yeah. coming down, you just put yours over the top of their imbricata and yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that's essentially what I'm talking about. But you could do the same thing with a cut, right? So if you if you can get on the angle of it and you can get yeah. behind, you can yeah, totally. You have to get behind that thing. You right? do, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, yeah. So yeah, yeah so we're you never want to stand this. on the inside of the imbricata. No, 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 good no, happens no, over there. no, 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 no. You have to get to the outside. Yes, right. yes. Yeah. Although okay. the anonymous right. has we one where what you do is you hang underneath it. So you come from Iron Gate and then you mm. hang underneath it, and it's actually surprisingly effective. Because hmm. as they try to drive down, they basically just drive into your hang and then it gets mm. you to a neutral bind afterwards. So they'll do That's this nice. and then they'll go, oh, this sucks, and cut around, and then the, you'll cut around and you'll be in like a medium distance in a neutral bind, which. Yeah. Yeah. It's an improvement in your position. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a pretty good outcome. Well, you know, I mean, I, one of the things that Chris always says is like, as long as you can fail neutral, you're doing okay. Right. You know? and, and you know what to do from neutral, then you're good. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of literature written about what happens when you fail neutral, like all of the true edge, true edge, false edge, false edge stuff. That's what happens if you fail neutral. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of information out there. And obviously, it is something that you have to sort of study as like a level of fencing. Yes, absolutely. So that's a hope. That's another thing I'm hoping that we'll be able to cover in the class so that people won't flee from the imbricata. And then the imbricata can lead to interesting fencing. I love that. Because in my gonna... little corner of the world, it, it becomes just a sad little technique that nobody wants to do anything with. <laughs> Like yeah. oh, it looks so nice, and yet, but we practice in grass parks, so the uh, the space to retreat is unlimited. Ah, yeah. So do we. I mean, we don't yeah. we don't have a, a fencing hall, so we we right. We're always out in the park, but ah, man, cool. it is. Yeah, it's it's been a riot. Thank you for doing this. Um, yeah, dude, it was fun, man. This I, was always fun. I think we'll have to we'll have to check in and do this every once in a while, where we just hang out and you know, yeah. just uh, hey, cheers, man. Five swords, <laughs> cheers, dude. Absolutely, it's been a an absolute pleasure. But um, yeah. I'll let you go. I gotta go eat dinner and then uh, yeah, go watch family stuff. So uh, yeah. yeah, so and then uh, we're gonna be putting out some announcements about the event pretty soon and stuff. So. Cool. 
yeah, look forward to it. Um, and if anybody's interested in October Effect, they can check out the Triangle Sword Guild's um, Facebook page or their website. Uh, just go to trianglesswordguild.com and then click on events and you'll see October Effect. So cool, man. All right, Joshua. Good seeing you, dude. Yeah, we'll talk soon. All right. Take care, man. All right, buddy. And that concludes another episode of Learte de Arme, the Bolognese podcast. Thanks again to Stephen for coming on and just having a ride with me. That was fantastic. Next week's episode, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk with uh, Pike Poland. Um, we are going to talk about Manchialino's attacks and his counters to his attacks. We're going to talk about some sword and buckler because Pike is an amazing sword and buckler fencer. Um, but Pike is also an amazing longsword fencer. And so uh, I'm going to talk to Pike about the two-handed sword a little bit. And um, we're going to get a little bit of perspective from the other side of the argument that um, I've been sort of posting here about the sort of looking at the Italian sources to help inform Murato. We're going to start to look at um, what the other side of that argument kind of looks like to look at other sources um, and think of... Um, you know, Murazzo in, in, in different ways. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, like I said, Pike is a, a phenomenal fencer, um, a great instructor, um, and a great human being. So really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, stay tuned for that, and stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>